historical narrative is a work that tells an event in history as a story, but cannot depart from the truth and the accuracy of that event. It can't fictionalize the event or contrive events that didn't happen, but must stick very closely to its sources and depend upon primary sources, people who are actually there, and secondary sources, the works of authors, researchers, and biographers to recreate that event authentically for readers. The John Lennon series is such a historical narrative. And tonight, we're going to take a glimpse at volume four in the John Lennon series, Should Have Known Better. We're going to look at a weekend in the middle of Beatlemania during a time that was harried and hectic and absolutely exhausting for John and Cynthia Lennon, for George, for Paul, for Ringo, and for all of them, including their girlfriends. It's a weekend in the spring, an Easter weekend, in which John and Cynthia and George and Patty were able to slip away from the crowds, from the screams, from the press, from everyone who followed them night and day, and hie away to County Clare Island, to lovely, majestic Dromolin Castle. And this is what happened. An excerpt from Should Have Known Better by Jude Sutherland Kessler. Wednesday evening, 25 March, 1964, Emperor's Gate, London. It had been 32 days since she'd really had John alone. Of course, he'd come home every evening after filming and then appearing on one television or radio program or another. But the John who wearily pushed past the girls lodged on the mansionette stairs and refused to fight back when they tore at his tie, leaving his neck black and blue, was only an automaton. Her John... The feisty, cackling, imaginative, amorous man she'd married had long been absent, and Cynthia missed her lover and best friend. Tomorrow morning, however, they were leaving, the four of them, George and Patty Boyd, John and herself, hieing away to County Clare, Ireland. Destination? Majestic Dromolin Castle, nestled deep in glorious nowhere. Alone for the last night and three nights to come, Cynthia packed her pearl-colored valise and hummed If I Fell. She tucked in Chanel No. 5 from their Paris honeymoon excursion and folded the new nightie from America, and Sin almost giggled at the prospect of nestling with John in a castle keep. Who would have ever imagined me in an Irish fortress, she smiled, or for that matter, me married in a castle with a leader of the Beatles? It was still surrealistic even after all this time. Tomorrow morning, John would go to work as usual. He'd film, he'd be interviewed in the interval by Dibbs Mather, a British-based Australian reporter and actor. He'd work. But by the time that the BBC picked up the interview to distribute overseas as part of its Dateline London series, John and she would be flying over the Irish Channel, away from lines and deadlines, away from crowds and cries, away from anything but rest, and, perhaps, romance. It had been George's idea for John and she to join him for his mini-break with Patty. Cynthia knew that John would have been content puttering about the house, watching Telly wearing his bathrobe and sitting on the bed with his guitar in hand. But George had been trying to keep his romance with Patty flush and hush-hush, 
and a remote Irish castle seemed like the perfect place to woo her without a bunch of reporters about. Ringo was leaving as well, personally invited by young Lord Rudolph Russell, son of the Duke of Bedford, to enjoy a holiday in Woburn Abbey. Grinning, the drummer had gladly accepted. The official chatter claimed Ringo was to be accompanied by quote-unquote friends, but Cynthia knew his companion would, of course, be Maureen. Only Paul was remaining behind in London, elated to spend a weekend alone with Jane, who, for once, wasn't off on one theatrical production or another. Paul was greedy to have her all to himself. In fact, their lack of time together had begun to rock a once steady craft. They were, Cynthia thought, in a bit of trouble. Cynthia wondered if she and John were in trouble as well. Recently, he'd been attending parties without her. Well, frankly, she'd declined to attend, having Julian to care for. Soirees at Alma Cogan's popular Kensington flat, and there was no denying it. John was attracted to the glamorous star. Who wouldn't be, really? Cynthia mused ruefully. Alma was shapely and sensational and filled with a genuine joie de vivre that made any occasion a gala. Not having an infant to care for, the star was rested, contagiously witty, and carefree. Just the kind of woman John admired. But no matter how Cynthia tried to be that kind of female, she could only manage loving and steady. It was her calling. Months ago, Sin had decided to squelch her jealousies, ignore all rumors, and accept what John offered. If she ventured down the path of imagining, Cynthia knew she would always be looking over her shoulder. She would spend her waking hours keeping the wolves and jackals from the door, suspicious and anxious. John would find that petty, annoying. Her insecurity would only gall him. So, snapping her suitcase closed, Sin tried her best to shut out the worries that niggled at her. Fretting wouldn't help. Wondering wouldn't change anything. And if she were to make this weekend, and her marriage, a success, she would have to go into it with a smile and unquestioning love. Just as Stu had done long ago, Cynthia would have to take John at face value, asking for nothing more. She would have to be content with whatever John was able to give her. And before her were three whole days, all her own. Thursday, 26 March, Emperor's Gate, Kensington, London. Their suite of rooms in Dromoland Castle had been purchased. Bulky scarves and camouflaging hats had been supplied. A private six-seater plane was waiting for them at London Airport, Heathrow, and their luggage sat by the door. Cynthia kissed Julian once more, reluctantly handing him over to her mum and promising for the fifth time in the last twenty minutes, We won't be gone long, love. Just three days. Three very short days. But the twenty-three-month-old toddler only waved his arms and gurgled. He was just beginning to put words together, to ask for muck, milk, or kits, Biscuits to gum. Dates on a calendar meant nothing to Julian. Well, you know where to reach us, Mum, Cynthia's brown eyes clouded. Yes, right, of course, run along. Her mother edged her daughter toward the door. Lillian fought a frown at John's impatient expression, and she bit her lip, recalling the gossip she'd heard about his philandering. One recent rumor even hinted that John was having a fling with the exotic Swedish model downstairs who was married to Robert Freeman. It bothered Lillian. She took rumors seriously. Your husband's waiting, she nudged Sin along as her daughter lingered with the baby. Come on, then, off you go, love. 
John was restive. He was pulling at the fake mustache pasted to his upper lip, twirling his wide, dark sunglasses and shifting his weight foot to foot. Cynthia turned and giggled at his disguise. You look awfully foreign for an Irish holiday-goer, she smiled. Rather Inspector Clouseau-ish, actually. Well, you can't go wrong with the best of sellers, can he began. But two sharp raps interrupted the quip, and checking the peephole, John flung the flat door open, drawing Bill Corbett immediately in. The massive bodyguard chauffeur held up a hand in lieu of speaking, and for a moment he stood with his hands on his knees, panting. The six flights up had been brutal, and it wasn't just the climb. He'd been as besieged as John regularly was. The girls had instantly recognized him as John's chauffeur and had tried to win him over to snag a bit of his clothing, a souvenir. Bill had been mauled. Catching his breath, he cordially nodded to Lillian and said hello to Sin, rolled his shoulders and neck, and calmed. But that was the difficult part of the equation. Beyond the thin front door, they could hear the growing commotion, jumping, waving, crowing, squealing, heightening howls. It was clear that John would be emerging soon. Outside, the fans wriggled and moaned. "'Ready, then?' Bill asked them, grabbing two suitcases to use as a plow. "'As will ever be,' John said, his eyes dark and intent. "'Yes, of course. Lead on,' Sin assented, and in one swift movement, Bill flicked the doorknob and stepped out rapidly. John and Sin almost attached to his heels. Lillian moved. She snapped the door shut behind her daughter and son-in-law and bolted it. Then she leaned heavily against the frame, listening. Inches away, she could hear the eruption of screams and over the tumult John's voice as he quelled the hungry fans. Sounds of scuffling and manic movement became a rhythmic backbeat, and the noise in the stairwell echoed and jumbled. Closing her eyes and trying to forget about the Lindbergh baby and the tremendous responsibility that was hers for the next three days, Lillian offered a quick prayer. She prayed that she would be able to safeguard Julian. She prayed for safe travels for John and Sin. But most of all, Lillian prayed that Cynthia would have the time of her life. Her daughter had taken on much, much more than she'd ever anticipated. But at least the girl seemed happy. That was the one saving grace in all of this. Cynthia was content. Manchester Airport, Manchester, England on a tide of giggle at Manchester Airport, they fell into the six-seater propeller plane. George's mustache was lifting. John's Sherlock Holmes tweed hat had almost taken flight in the wind, and his dark glasses were askew. Patty was doubled over at the ridiculousness of the espionage, and George, employing a bizarre Russian accent, was goading her on. But Cynthia had seen a few startled people recognize them as they'd scurried by, and she knew that the speed of their departure had been indispensable. They'd been only seconds from discovery and apprehension. It had been a very close call. This is a plane? Patty erupted into fresh laughter. More of a car, isn't it? Cynthia reached out, almost brushing both walls. Exciting, George beamed, looking straight at Patty. Small and vulnerable is more like, Cynthia thought, but not wanting to upset John, she only nodded and smiled. The roar of the engine sent them all to their places, stowing vanity cases, cinching seat belts, and peering from dusty windows. Cynthia closed her eyes and prayed, and within minutes the tiny craft was airborne. Moving up and away from reality, Easter weekend had begun. They were en route to County Clare.
Drummoland Castle, County Clare, Ireland. Drummoland Castle was dramatic. Showcased on a lush field of verdant grass bordered by hardwoods, hillocks, and a lake, the ancient storybook building was an atoll in a cerulean sea. Originally established as a holding in the Middle Ages, and then structured into a baronial estate in the early 1700s with 29 guest rooms, the manse held history within its walls. Elegantly completed by Sir Edwin O'Brien, Lord of Dromoland, from 1800 to 1836, the castle overlooked the Irish fields with an inherent dignity and the singular architectural beauty of the Payne brothers, whose artistry was unmatched. For ages, Dromoland had been the guardian of County Clare, standing watch at the mystical junction of the Shannon and Fergus rivers. From artfully chiseled blue limestone rose three blocky towers and one three-and-a-half-story turret. Tall, leaded windows with stained-glass tiers arched across the structure and showered light on the lawn. And a single iron fist clutching a drawn dagger, the symbol of the courageous O'Brien clan, rose from the guard wall while a scowling lion's head posed as a door-knocker. The tricolor flag of the Republic whipped about indignantly in the late afternoon breeze. Ivy tendrils clung for dear life to the walls. In the wet spring gusts that rose and fell at will, Ireland was iridescent, lovely. March was fading, and April coming on. The earth was rich and fragrant. Cynthia's brochure stated that Dromoland had been a hotel since 1962. Before then, the only guests traveling the long, twisting drive towards the Gothic revival home had been the gentry, a long line of serious landed patriots benevolently fighting for the rights of starving Irish Catholic farmers, patriots fiercely seeking independence from mighty Britain. But this weekend, two slender young men and their enchanting ladies in a hired car from Shannon Airport were seeking independence as well. They came in search of freedom from the public and the press. They came for solitude. They came for a chance simply to be. Hmm, George had borrowed the slick, glossy brochure. Says here they have falconry, archery, and croquet. And day trips to the Cliffs of Moher, Cynthia suggested. There's an elegant afternoon tea, Jane had heard. And flame and Irish whiskey, John flashed a goon grin, for those in the presidential suite, as it were. There's no presidential suite. You've invented that entirely, George quirked his mouth to the side. And what would it entail exactly if, in fact, there were a presidential suite? Well, I don't know, do I? John arched an eyebrow. But we'll soon find out, won't we, Sonny Jim? And minutes later, they did. The illustrious Beatles and their ladies were solicitously escorted up towards an out-of-the-way suite of rooms, recently occupied by the late President John F. Kennedy, his enchanting Jackie, and their retinue. What do you have to say about this? John was merciless when he was right, and in George's opinion, he was right far too frequently. What do you have to say about this? George flipped John a backhanded V. They pulled faces at one another as they followed their guide down a long, echoing hallway. At the turn of a key, the sitting room of the presidential suite awaited. It boasted two plush, upholstered sofas facing one another, the left in cream with soft robin's eggs pillows, and the right one, an exact contrast, pale blue upholstery with cream pillows scattered artfully about. A long wall of windows overlooked the spot where the Shannon and Fergus stilled into a lake, and on either side of the wide hardwood casings, subtle blue and white wallpaper patterned the walls. 
a table of stacked books, a large antique mirror, two silver reading lamps, and one lush ivory mohair throw. The details were remarkable. This wasn't the showy Georges Sank or the uptown plaza. This was serenity, a getaway for weary travelers. The bedrooms were equally soothing, formal floral etchings with subdued mats and weathered gold frames, fresh flowers. They saw a green room, cozy and unique, a little jewel. And then a second, the blue room, this one a bit larger. A tester bed boasted a meticulous Hardinger coverlet. Two powder-blue wing-back chairs waited beside a long-legged mahogany tea table. And in this way, the stage was set for quiet conversation or the scant sound of pages turning in good books. There's a grand claw-footed tub in here, Hattie called, delighted from the bath, and full view of the meadow as well. Sid and I have this one, then, John claimed ownership, flopping on the bedspread. And no one argued, because really, both rooms were inescapably inviting and just spacious enough. Guests in Dremoland were not treated as guests. They were pampered, but always made to feel at home. Anything's fine with me, Cynthia tried to be amenable as she stood at the window and stared. It's just magnificent to be free. It was the universal sentiment. Thus far, no photographers or reporters had discovered the four of them, and dinner was to be served at 7 p.m. in the drawing room, presented privately in deep wine and gold grace. In upholstered Jacobian chairs beside quiet tables with starched linens, in elegant aloofness. It wasn't the Beatles' usual metier, but today it was exactly what they needed. Dremolin was the place to be. Dear Mum, Dremolin Castle is breathtaking, and so far so good. Not a hint of reporters at our heels. This afternoon we explored the recesses of the castle and enjoyed the grounds without having to look over our shoulders. Our evening meal passed without a hitch, and now we're retiring to our beds, safe in the knowledge that tomorrow will prove just as beautiful and relaxed. Thank you for making this possible for us. John sends love as well. Your Cynthia. Friday, 27 March. Dremoland Castle, Ireland. But the hounds picked up the scent, and when John's eyes opened at dawn, he could hear the sound of a crowd outside the castle walls. Voices, honking horns, shouts, commotion. He knew they'd found him. It had been too good to be true. Brian recommended that they make the best of things. Dress smartly and invite the press to photograph George and you strolling the grounds or playing a round of croquet. Once satisfied, hopefully they'll all retreat and leave you to it. Balls to that. John was livid. The fuggin' phone started ringing at 6 fuggin' a.m., Brian. And even with the windows closed and the curtains drawn, we could hear them out there. They never leave off, and you know it. Well, hire a car, and after a bit of photo session, elude them. Motor off somewhere remote for the afternoon. Disappear. It was a weak solution, but Brian was out of ideas. He wasn't Neil, after all. And things were the same for Ringo and Paul. Woburn Abbey was hopelessly encircled by reporters, and Jane Asher's home in Wimpole Street, enclosed by fans and headline seekers. None of the boys were immune. Fame had no limits, and on Easter weekend, 1964, eminence was exacting its pound of flesh. Dear Mum, 
Well, it was short-lived. The press has sorted us out. Instead of being confronted with an enemy bearing bows and arrows, we're besieged by a multitude armed with cameras, and they're pointing their weapons at us in a very threatening manner. The only bright spot in this fiasco is that I had so dreamed of taking John away for an afternoon to the cliffs of Mower. Now, perhaps, he'll agree to it. Love, Cynthia. George and John complied. Dressed to the nines, George in his sleek, pocketless stage suit, white dress shirt with French cuffs and taut black tie, and John in a velvet hacking jacket with black turtleneck and dark keks, as John had once called them, Merseyside, they strolled out to confront the press on the castle grounds. Eric Piper, the Daily Mirror's photographer, spoke with them quietly and made some suggestions, and within minutes compromises had been made and limits set. A well-photographed game of croquet was agreed upon by both parties, and it was staged to the hilt. Strategy is the order of the day, John thought. Play to win. But this morning's wily competition would be the press, not George. John had devised an escape. It was only a matter of outsmarting Piper and outwitting the Fleet Street hounds who bayed several hundred yards back, awaiting their opportunity for an interview. It was a matter of tactical expertise. So smiling, winking, and feigning concord, the two of four beetles set their wickets and plotted a course for Piper's camera. They drove wooden posts into the ground and made aimless small talk. They swung their mallets with contrived zest. At first, the game proceeded as usual, the boys striking the ball and following the roll. But as the press goaded them on, the game took unexpected turns. George hoisted his mallet and knelt, making the stick into a billiard cue, and John, too, fell to the ground, lining up his best shot. The crowds chuckled. Then, flinging his mallet this way and that, John, employing his best geriatric imitation, cackled out poetry from in his own right. In the jumble, the mighty jumble, wide hunter sleeps tonight. The mallet became a bludgeon, the ball John's prey. As he stalked his quarry on the green, photos snapped everywhere. From the window, well behind a patterned shear, Cynthia observed, smiling at the nonsense being played out just beyond the car park. They're kneeling on the lawn in their finest suits, she called out to Patty. John's Aunt Mimi would grouse and fuss were she here. Look at them, Patty joined her, shaking her long blonde hair and giggling, dimples deep in her cheeks. George had assumed a fencing pose and was challenging John to a duel, while the onlookers cheered and applauded, reveling as if they had been invited to this private party. For a few minutes, the boys clacked mallets, skittering about and turning on one another. Then, when a solemn, uniformed hotel waiter strode out bearing a small silver tray with two wine glasses, the action halted. The boys paused, panting. They sipped dark red wine and whispered, their heads together. John muttered. George nodded. They looked about, their eyes narrowed. Rapidly replacing their goblets on the serving tray, the two beleaguered beetles charged into the castle, returning minutes later with actual swords, borrowed from the hallway display of medieval knights. Now, clanging metal and leaping leaps, the game was on, full bore. Take that! George bounded to a low stone wall bordering a flight of stairs. Swinging the slighter of the two swords, with one booted toe airborne, his hair flew in the wind. Yeah, we'll take that back, John shouted, wielding a massive piece of weaponry to block his lead guitarist. 
George jumped and charged. John countered, howling as an RTE crew filmed the brief but dramatic fray. The boys swiped and clacked and laughed madly each time their swords made contact. Stop shouting those animals, John quoted himself. On Jumble Jim! He hurled his poetry and prose as the spirit moved him. George bayed and pivoted. Always the best of the Beatles in the spotlight, he winked, playing to the camera. After some minutes of careening, the boys held up their hands to catch their breath. Then, racing into the castle again, this time under the guise of fetching shields, they shrieked and hollered. But as the mob of greedy pressmen stopped tapping toes awaiting round two, a slow-moving car driven by hotel chauffeur Willie Daly motored from the car park unremarked. And, tucked away, deep in its leather seats, were two perspiring knights of Liverpool with Cynthia Powell Lennon and Patty Boyd snickering beside them. Two very flushed beetles toweling off and clandestinely rolling to the desolate cliffs of mower in the Irish seaside. It's called the Burren, this, Willie Daly purred a thick Irish brogue, a vast, unspoiled, rocky expanse unlike anything anywhere else, a wilderness where plants of the Arctic, Alpine, and Mediterranean exist comfortably side by side. The car rumbled along a snaking route, its wet wheels slurping up the remote roadway. Flatlands climbed to gentle hills and overlooks. Feral bilberry goats startled away, enormous hawks and dark amaranthine ravens circled overhead, and far beneath the precipices of the Atlantic, great colonies of puffins nested and plowed their prodigious way along the rocky shore. The primeval land was drenched from a brief shower, and in the afternoon sun the world was golden, green, and rusty red, glittering. We've all sorts of creatures here, Daly went on. Gillamots, shags, chuffs. So an extra beetle or two won't matter so very much, George grinned. Hardly noticeable, I'd say, Daly smiled into the rearview mirror. Perfect, Cynthia breathed, hopeful. The lowest point of the burren, Hagshead, stands 390 feet. Their tour guide navigated slow turns as he talked, but at its highest point, near the famous O'Brien's Tower, the land's a grand 702 feet above the Atlantic, with a majestic view of the Aran Islands out in Galway Bay. To the north, you'll see the Twelve Pins Range and the Mount Turk Mountains of Connemara, and to the south, Loop Head. And who was this towering famous O'Brien when he was at home? John loved stories of the past. The forefather of the man who built your hotel for one, a true son of Ireland, a direct descendant of the great Brian Boru, daily puffed up at the name. Ah, the great Brian Boru, the very last king of England, John donned a Celtic accent. The only one ever to best the ferocious O'Neill clan, if I'm not mistaken, and I hardly ever am. Isn't that right, George? He smirked. Boru, the unvanquished defeater of the barbarous Norse, the very shield of the homeland, Boru. Show off, spat George. As they say in Liverpool, Paddy's eyes twinkled with mischief, I can't hear a blind word John says. Good girl, George patted her hand, justified. Cynthia flew to John's defense. Well, as they say on the Wirral, how very dare you? Go on. Daly misunderstood. He took Cynthia's encouragement to her husband as his personal cue, and, taking a deep breath, he resumed his tour spiel. O'Brien. Sir Cornelius O'Brien, to us hoi polloi, 
constructed the round stone tower you're about to take in around 1835 as an overlook, a point of interest, to raise a bit of fare in County Clare, you know. Up the economy. He started building a flagstone wall some six feet or more high as his way of giving employment to those stricken by the Great Famine. Amazing he was, O'Brien. Any part of that wall is still standing, Cynthia leaned forward, peering out the window. A great deal of it. You'll see, we're almost there. And see it they did. The afternoon was spent foraging the paths and cliffs and crags of the burren. John donned his glasses and prowled the stacked stone ledges, a hard-bitten alien creature attacking from the sea. He pawed with tiny tucked claws and growled with his tongue jammed behind his lower lip while Cynthia giggled and snapped one photo after another, completely taken with his nonsense. At the wet and blustery cliffs of Moher, John inched on his belly across the soggy beds of Nemurian shale and sandstone, stopping only when he hung far out over the perilous ledge. Then, carefully righting himself, he sat with legs dangling above the Atlantic, his hair shabby in the wind, his jacket cinched about him. After some time he fished for a cig, smoked, and stared. He thought. John peered out at the majestic Renown Sea stack rising like a ponderous stalagmite in the bay. He lost himself in the horizon. While George and Patty strolled hand in hand, commenting on this and that, gathering mementos, Cynthia walked apart, letting her husband reflect. And when she photographed John from a distance, she didn't ask him to turn and ape for the camera. She allowed him peace. It was a halcyon time, an afternoon apart from reality. They took tea in Liscanor, where the locals welcomed them without event or fuss. And when the sun began its never-ordinary descent into the Atlantic, Willie motored the couples down beside the ocean for one last breath of uncluttered air. At first, John negotiated the slick, moss-covered stone slopes down to the water's edge, holding Sin's hand and shouting to her above the waves. But as the spray rose and flattened her hair, Cynthia retreated. She motioned for John to go on alone, out to the water's ruffled rim, to walk ahead without her. Down along the shore, wandering in and out of frigid foam, John made his way. Then, at length, shading his brow like an ancient explorer, he slowed, then stopped. John stood watching the sky burn off its rays, and in its final curtain he was framed in the glow. Cynthia took the photograph. It was, after all, a superlative metaphor for their lives together. Here she was, looking on and admiring from a distance. And there John was, part of the incredible, just beyond her reach. Sin wondered if moving from London into a real home snuggled into the countryside would matter if separating John, now and again, from the hypnotic world at large would change things, bring them closer together. Right now the distractions were colorful, varied, and abundant. It was a dangerous time to be a wife. My thanks to my dear friend, who shall remain nameless for that beautiful, beautiful reading of a chapter from Volume 4 in the John Lennon series, Should Have Known Better. People are always asking me at the Fest for Beatles fans and other places where I exhibit the books and sell them, how much of this book is really true? I've heard this as a fictionalized account. 
Well, a narrative history is not a work of historical fiction. And I thought I'd share with you for just a second the events in this chapter that are actually historically accurate. First, George is inviting John and Cynthia to spend the weekend at Dromolan Castle in County Clare Island, Ireland, with Patty and himself. True. The parties at Alma Cogan's flat in London that John attended when Cynthia declined to attend and his fascination with Alma Cogan, true. Cynthia's decision to squelch her jealousies found both in her book, John, and in A Twist of Linen, and we'll discuss that a little bit more in just a minute, true. The fact that John would find her jealousies petty and annoying, a direct quote from Cynthia, Sue's acceptance of John on face value without ever questioning John or wanting him to change, absolutely true. The suite of rooms that had been booked for John and Cynthia, George and Patty, and the six-seater plane that would leave Manchester Airport, documented. Every single word said on the plane, true, comes from Cynthia's books. John's fling with Swedish model Sonny Freeman, reported in many accounts, including Philip Norman's John Lennon, The Life. Bodyguard Bill Corbett taking them to the airport, true, documented by Cynthia. The description of the fans on the stairs in Emperor's Gate, true, in both of Cynthia's books. The disguises that John and George wore and Cynthia's seeing people recognize them in the Manchester airport directly from her book, John, true. The description of Dromolin Castle, Absolutely true. I spent hours and hours watching videos of Dromolin during the 1960s. The description of the presidential suite, again, true. And the bathroom, accurate. Again, hours studying photographs of this room and making notes about it from the 1960s. The description of the landscape in the 1960s, true. The description of the drawing room and the time that they had dinner that evening, all authentic. Every single word in Cynthia's postcards to her mom taken directly from her two books. The accounts of the crowds at Woburn Abbey and in Wimpole Street surrounding Ringo and Paul, true. The description of the press showing up and finding John and Cynthia, George and Patty in Dromolin, absolutely true. The description of what John and George wore during that forced photo session with the press, accurate. You can see the photos for yourself in a few minutes. I'll tell you where you can see them. The game of croquet that turned into a sword fight, absolutely true. There are also photographs of that sword fight. And the concept of the two of them ducking into the castle for swords and then shields as an escape plan, true. Willie Daly and his car that rescued them from the press, absolutely accurate. In fact, Willie Daly himself has written an article about it that we'll discuss in a minute. The exact places that Willie took them to that afternoon, true. The description of the Burren, the description of O'Brien's Tower, and the history of Cornelius O'Brien, all authentic. Every single pose and every photograph mentioned, including that photograph in which John is shading his eyes against the sunset, and everything that John and Cynthia did on the Cliffs of Boar, all true. Seen in photographs, documented in articles that came out in newspapers at that time, and told to us by Cynthia in her two books. So what is not true in that chapter? Not very much. Everything is documented in 72 pages of typed notes that turned into this chapter. 
at the end of every chapter, I give you additional notes that give you some more information about the events in the chapter, and this one is no exception. So let's do the notes. Question number one, how did John and Sin, Patty and George, elude the crowds as they departed Drummond Castle? Escaping the castle was an ordeal. And of course, they were without Neil Aspinall's talent for cagey exits. But fortunately, a former LaHinch guard, Bill Kelly, stepped up and offered the perfect getaway vehicle for Cynthia and Patty when it was time for them to leave and go back to the airport to fly back to London. He suggested a laundry van. Well, Cynthia, recalling their wild ride in that meat truck during the February trip to America, was extremely hesitant to be locked in the rear of another speeding van. But Brian had insisted that George not be photographed with Patty Boyd. He did not want George and Patty walking out of the front of Dromolan Castle, getting into a car, and then spreading the word about George and Patty dating. So, with a full-fledged array of fans and reporters gathered around the castle, Cynthia said, how on earth were we going to get away from the place without taking that laundry van? After much coaxing, she reluctantly acquiesced to Kelly's plan. Kelly put John and George into a very obvious car at the front entrance of the hotel so that the crowds would, of course, follow them to the airport. Then he had Cynthia and Patty climb into an over-large wicker basket, which the staff carefully placed into the waiting laundry van. Unhappily, the anxious driver careened away before the two girls could be released from the basket, and for an hour they were tossed to and fro in the dark, sweltering, confining basket, that laundry basket. Cynthia observed, we could barely breathe. We were convinced we'd suffocate. We shouted at the top of our lungs, but it was soon clear that the driver couldn't hear us. There was nothing we could do but hang on and pray. <laughs> well, guys, that was Cynthia's last hurrah in the back of a getaway truck. After this, she was determined never, ever again. Question number two, were these events of March 26th through the 28th, 1964 real? And what proof do we have that they didn't occur at another time? Why do I ask that question? Well, a few years ago, the photos of George and John in Ireland that were discussed at the end of this chapter appeared in the Daily Mirror. And they were thought by some informed collectors to have been taken when the Beatles were in Dublin in 1963. In fact, if you go online, you will see those photographs identified as being from the 1963 stay in Dublin. However, careful examination will prove that this time frame is not correct. These photos were in fact taken on the afternoon of Friday 27 March 1964, when George and Patty, John and Cynthia were on holiday in County Clare. How do I know this? Let's go through the logic. Number one, if you compare the photographs taken at Dromolan Castle to the photographs taken on the Cliffs of Moore, you'll see that John is wearing exactly what he was wearing in the croquet game and the sword fighting photos taken at the castle on 27 March. Same trousers? 
same black turtleneck, same brown hacking jacket. His hair is the exact same length. It's styled identically. The photos were clearly taken within hours of one another on the same day. Number two, furthermore, tour guide and car driver Willie Daly states in an article by Andrew Hamilton for Claire, C-L-A-R-E, ClarePeople.com, that he rescued John and George from the photo session at Dromolan Castle on that Friday and that he drove the two Beatles and their ladies out to the Burren, O'Brien's Tower, and the Cliffs of Moore. Pretty cut and dried, right? He states that they had tea in Liscanor, just as I told you in the chapter, and returned to the hotel in the late afternoon. If you'd like to see that article from Willie Daly, go to clairepeople.com backslash 2014 backslash 3 backslash 10. Were you there when the Beatles visited County Clare in 1964? And you'll see it. Number three, when the Beatles were in Dublin, because some people claimed that those photos were taken when they were in Dublin on 7 November 1963, there was no opportunity for John and George to travel the long distance to the Cliffs of Moor. The Beatles were in the midst of the chaotic autumn tour, and they were playing one venue after another daily. When they arrived in Dublin shortly after noon, they did an interview with RTE reporter Frank Hall and cameraman Jake. Jack Merriman. Then they had lunch at the Gresham Hotel with concert venue manager Harry Lush. Well, after lunch, they had a second interview with Paul Russell and his cameraman Bill Robinson for an RTE program called the Show Band Show. And then later that afternoon, they gave a big press conference at Dublin's Adelphi Hotel, then performed two shows, and then were whisked away to the Gresham Hotel amidst almost a riot. I mean, people were turning cars over. There were fires set. It was a very dangerous situation. The next morning, the boys left very early for Belfast. So there was absolutely no time for a trek out to the Cliffs of Moor. Furthermore, George's mother had flown over to meet him and to see her family in Ireland, so George would not have left with John to drive all the way out to the Cliffs of Moor and go sightseeing. Therefore, the photographs of John and George on the Cliffs of Moor were definitely taken on the afternoon of 27 March, 1964. Question number four, are Cynthia Lennon's real feelings about losing her closeness to John accurately depicted in this chapter, or is this just something that I'm making up? Well, let's look at the evidence. Peter Brown, in his book, The Love You Make, page 114, states, Cynthia began to resent the fans, and her isolation in the big city increased. Cynthia, in her book, John, page 139, says, John felt as sad and frustrated as I did that we were apart so much and that so soon after becoming a husband and a father, he simply couldn't be there for us. Furthermore, in her book, A Twist of Linen, page 147, Cynthia says, although you might think that I had all any woman could wish for, life for me could be very lonely. John spent weeks and months away from home. There seemed to be very little time for us to be close as we were in the early days. We seemed to be pulling in opposite directions. 
And finally, in her book, John, page 160, Cynthia says, I still lack confidence in my appearance. It hadn't mattered so much when John and I were in Liverpool. In those days, we only had eyes for each other, and my black bardo outfits and newly blonde hair made me feel that I was a height of glamour. But now, surrounded by rake-thin models and actresses who made their living from looking gorgeous, I could see the temptation for John all around us, and I felt I couldn't compete. So Cynthia's feelings expressed in this chapter are very, very real. They come from her own words. Where did I get the information for this chapter? Well, many, many sources. Mark Lewison's The Complete Beatles Chronicles and The Beatles Day by Day. Bill Harry's The Ultimate Beatles Encyclopedia and The John Lennon Encyclopedia. Barry Miles' Beatles Diary Volume 1. Cynthia Lennon's two books, A Twist of Lennon and John. Philip Norman's John Lennon to Life. Michael Lynch's and Damian Smith's invaluable book that I absolutely depended on, The Beatles in Ireland. Kevin Howlett's The Beatles at the BBC, The Radio Years, 1962 through 1970. And... John's book, of course, in his own right, which was quoted many times in the chapter, Peter Brown's The Love You Make, and then many websites, including one on the Cliffs of Moore, cliffsofmore.ie, Cliffs of Moore backslash Tower, Cliffs of Moore backslash Burren, and of course, clarepeople.com, where that article is posted from Willie Daly, and the irishexaminer.com where there is an article about John at the Cliffs of Moore along with photographs. The photo that Dibs Mather did of interviewing the Beatles is very helpful. Kevin Howlett's photos in Live at the BBC, the radio years, very helpful. So many places that I investigated in order to get the information for this chapter. There is absolutely no way that a historical narrative can be created by one person. It is the work of many people, those who were actually there and graciously share their memories with me, those who have given years and years to research and have written books that I use in my investigation, those who collect documents and memorabilia and then are so kind to share them with me, those who transcribe recordings and studio tapes and interviews, those who collect and then lend me photographs, those who edit and correct errors, those who edit and improve. I could never, never, never create the John Lennon series on my own. It belongs to a whole village, really. It belongs to all of you. Thank you for reading it. Thank you for being with me this evening. And most of all, thank you for loving John. Ta-ra and shine on.